0: You're listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get started with this week's episode. With somebody who has connections back to where I went to school. Not only that, uh, he's taking, undertaking some amazing projects and telling veteran stories. We'll get to that coming up in just a few moments. But first, our normal announcements. Please give us a follow on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Continue to leave us Apple reviews. I keep getting notifications that we're getting more and more Apple reviews. So thank you guys very much. Wherever you get your podcast on Apple, leave us a short review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. It's going to help grow this podcast and, and grow this Hazard Ground community. And we certainly appreciate all the love and support that you guys give this show every single week. It means the world to us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a thumbs up, like, and subscribe. Uh, you can watch all of our episodes there including all of our videos uh, that we put up. So our YouTube channel is there. Don't forget to download the Killcliff TV app where you can also get all of the Hazard Ground episodes in video format as well. And of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You can do all your normal shopping. Uh, it's coming up around graduation time. Want to go buy gifts? Go to amazon.com or go to Hazard Ground first. Whatever you spend, we'll get a percentage of that and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on on the Hazard Ground. So it's a great, easy way for you guys to support veterans charities across America just by doing Amazon shopping, but you got to go to HazardGround.com first. And don't forget about our good friends over at KillCliff. Go to KillCliff.com to order all of your KillCliff. This is their CBD Killer sickle. If you're into CBD products, KillCliff makes the best clean energy drinks they're a fantastic company founded by a former Navy SEAL, and uh, I know these people inside and out. I use their products. It is an amazing company, uh, and their their products are great. So killcliff.com, order your pre-workout, your post-workout drinks, and their entire line of CBD at killcliff.com. All right, on to this week's episode. Uh, with a former Marine who spent six years in the Marine Reserve – uh, with a couple of deployments overseas. He is now a writer, editor, and educator. Uh, he's the editor of the anthology, Retire the Colors, Veterans and Civilians on Iraq and Afghanistan, which is a bunch of short stories from people who were there. Uh, he also became the distinguished graduate of the John Hopkins University MA in writing, and he's currently working on a screenplay about a Marine's return from war. He is Dario Batista joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Dario, welcome, brother, and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, Mark. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having right. right.
0: Full disclosure everybody. Uh, I bumped into Dario on Twitter. Uh and, and it's, it's funny I find a lot of guests there just because military Twitter and the military space is very very connected, right? If you have one or two military friends and they're talking to somebody else, but you know the minute I saw you and started reading through your tweets and saw your background I was super interested in hearing your story because it's very unique. I mean, we've had a lot of other writers and authors on before but um, then when I saw that you were from, uh, the Baltimore area, I went to Loyola. So, uh, you're in, you're in that area and you know, the school area very well. So it was like, there was another sort of symmetry between us. So it, it's great to get you on. Uh, and I think the other thing that I found really interesting in your, your anthology, Retire the colors, one of our former guests and a friend of mine, Brian Kastner, uh, was one of the short stories that was told in your book.
1: Yeah. Um, it was quite a privilege to be able to work on that collection, um, Honestly, my job was more curatorial than it was, uh, editorial, you know, giving, giving instructions on authors, how to write and why. And, and Brian Kastner being the, the, the stature of author he is, you know, he sent me something. I'm like, perfect. No <laughs> questions needed. Thank you so much, sir.
0: <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brian's as sharp as they come. Uh, but let's go back, uh, for you and, and tell your story about how it started and why and when you got in the Marines.
1: Yeah. So, um, um, you know, unfortunately, the story is common and, you know, I'm not trying to perpetrate any uh, stereotypes, but uh, I was not a very good student, right? <laughs> College was not in the cards for me. Uh, my GPA, my counselor said I had the lowest GPA uh, possible she's ever seen of uh, somebody who graduated and I believe her, um, but I always wanted to serve. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know why, but I just always been compelled to, um doing something of uh, 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 service, bigger than myself. Um, again, uh, not a very good student, not very disciplined. I was just kind of reading the tea leaves of my future and realized if I didn't make some big changes, things were not going to go well for me. So um, I thought about uh, joining the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force. Uh, it just so happened a bunch of my friends out of um, high school were joining the Marines and you know, I watched Full Metal Jacket and I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. So <laughs> I signed up for it. But, Mark, I, I knew nothing about the military. I, I thought I'd go to boot camp and if it didn't work out, give it the old college try and go home. And, you know, I actually graduated boot camp two and a half weeks before 9-11. So the stakes were not quite the same as I think a lot of the guests on the show who who to me are incredibly courageous to say, hey, that's the decision I'm making, knowing that this is probably what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, because uh, I know you signed up in 2001. I was about to ask you. Uh, if it was pre or post nine eleven, I would have just assumed it's post at that point in time. But, you know, it, when you signed up for, in a pre nine eleven world, it was a much different sort of mentality heading into the military. You know, sure. the world was hunky-dory back then.
1: Yes, uh, I remember our drill instructors, um, you know, they, they created a, an apocryphal enemy, somebody to motivate you, screaming, I bet the Chinese are training harder than you. And even at combat training, we were still um, going through the motions of this is what lessons we learned in Vietnam. It, nobody really had the global war on terror on their radar.
0: Yeah, there wasn't certainly anybody's date book, that's for sure. Um So did you find boot camp to be a massive physical struggle?
1: I did. Um, um You know, I was a little runth, so uh, I was able to do the physical stuff weirdly, just kind of like skinny, scrawny, but had a lot of endurance. Uh To me, they're all more of a mental challenge than they are physical, you know, just the fortitude of finding out what you're actually capable of when you're you're being pushed um you know i still remind people in the movies they say drop and give me 20 drop and give me 20 is easy in the marine corps they say just push and you just keep pushing and you don't know when you're going to stop right
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's the open-ended question that you hate or the open-ended order that you hate just start running well how far just just go yeah we'll find you when we need you um but you know it's interesting you you mentioned how you weren't a good student so uh just out of curiosity, like in the big arch, how do you go from not a good student to a master's in writing
1: at Johns Hopkins? <laughs> Does the switch go on for you at some point? Um, it's a, it's a great question mark, and I think people who knew me in high school are, are flabbergasted by the change. And, um, <laughs> you know, the the military is a, a deeply personal decision that many people make for many reasons. But for me, um, you know, it's a direct arc from all the intangibles and this conversation about learning what you're made of uh, instilled to me from bootcamp that just made college seem pretty easy in comparison. Um, you know, uh, nobody's trying to kill me. <laughs> I'm not on orders on standby, you know, in a battle for a month at a time. Um, you know, it's just a lot of those intangibles, leadership, fortitude, uh, the ability to uh, synthesize, understand information quickly, you know, kind of cut out the bullshit. Find out what, like, what's important. You know, paradoxically, I, I don't stress about it, so that's why I do well. Whereas, I think if I did stress about it, I probably would not do as well. Does that make sure. sense?
0: No, absolutely. Uh, so, you actually did you enlist in the Marine Corps Reserve, or how did that whole thing come about? I mean, eventually you deploy, obviously, but what was your contract?
1: Yeah, I signed up as a reservist. Okay, uh, again, now is that what you knew
0: you wanted to do? You were going to do the part time deal the whole way.
1: I wanted to go to school. Um, that was the reason I joined the reserves. Um, and also, as I said, I didn't really know anything about the military. I probably should ask more questions before I <laughs>
0: joined. I, I, I said, made the same I mistake too. I, I feel like in retrospect, I should ask a lot more questions when I was younger, but you know, you live and you learn, right? <laughs> Trial by fire.
1: Um, but I, after 9-11, I mean, it didn't make sense to me to be a reservist. Um, I was at combat training when the towers fell. I, I wanted to go active duty and I did everything I could to make that happen. Um, and spend a lot of time on active duty. It was it was a very weird time, Mark, uh, as I'm sure you remember, um being a, 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 a reservist, Lance Corporal in that time. You were very much just a utilitarian, uh, a platoon person. Um you know, I did uh force protection uh, in Kuwait, uh not my MOS. I was able to do civil affairs for my second deployment. They were literally just taking volunteers and saying, um you know, go over there and you'll figure it out on the job. It was just a really unprecedented time. They just, you know, I, I hate to use this phrase, but they literally just needed bodies. Um, and because I wasn't really tethered to, you know, a stateside mission, I was able to volunteer for lots of stuff, which was pretty exciting overall. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, listen, hey, you know, uh, the, the idea of, of volunteering for a deployment is doesn't come along often, right? You're usually told where to go. So when you get the opportunity to sort of do something that you're geared towards or at least are interested in. Makes it a little bit more tenable, so that said, you finished boot camp right after 9 eleven you're now back to being a civilian so how quickly do you actually deploy or get to active duty or I mean timeline wise what does this look like?
1: So I went from training uh, pretty much immediately to active duty. I worked as a recruiter's assistant in um, Towson, Maryland excuse me that was a really <laughs> Tough job. Not a lot of people interested in joining the uh, military uh, right after 9-11 when, you know, the economy is great. And there's a lot of opportunities for people outside of that. Um, you know, so we did a lot of uh, uh, area canvassing, phone calls. You know, it wasn't my job to get people to sign up. It was my job to get them into the office to talk to the recruiters. So it was a pretty interesting job. <clears throat> um, learned a lot about, uh, uh, again, you know, just intangible skills, uh, building relationships. Immediately, uh, learning how to read people, learning how to communicate well—all all these skills were things I was able to build upon. Um, to help me, you know, crush civilian world after uh, 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 military experiences. You know, um, you know, something as basic as the Marine Corps is very poor, as you know. If you don't have friends, like you're really going to struggle. You, you need to know somebody in admin. <laughs> you need to know somebody in supply somebody in ammo um, who can just hook you up and make things happen or, or you're going to struggle. Uh, I learned later that's called business development.
0: <laughs> yeah. So sort of one of those fancy civilian terms that the the military never uses, but it certainly applies uh, the, to say the least.
1: It's the skill I've used as a writer to build uh, relationships with other writers, edit, other editors, um, never take something for nothing, uh, be humble, work hard, and, you know, just be a part of a community. Um, you know, I think these are basic concepts that, some people miss out on, uh, uh, you know, just from having different life experiences or just being taught like, Hey, get your degree, take care of yourself and and make it work. Um, you know, I never want to, uh, uh, overstate the veteran experience, but there's just a lot from it that just helps you be a better community member, but be a better citizen just having gone through it.
0: No, a hundred percent. I mean, that's a, you know, we talk so much about the veteran space and and the post-combat veteran space, right? I mean, that's, Supposed to be part of the draw to, to, to acquiring and hiring veterans, right? Self starters and understanding, you know, how to do things with very little instruction, how to operate in a complex environment on a on a fairly routine basis, and like you said, no one's shooting at me, so uh, everything else is negotiable at that point in time. So you know, we, we bring a whole different a whole different skill set to the table that a lot of other civilians don't have. Uh, you mentioned that you got to Kuwait, so what happens after the recruiting job? I mean, is, do you take the first thing, hopping overseas?
1: I did. Um, and again, uh, just a very unusual time. Uh, for some reason, uh, I was, I was, my original unit was fourth rations company in Anakasha, DC, um, uh, uh, right near Bowling air force base. It was like, that, mm-hmm. an and, uh, it was mostly cooks and supply people. And for some reason they thought I was a cook, but I didn't tell them I was a cook. Cause I didn't want to let not be able to go. And they took 20 volunteers initially, and again, we were just parceled out like minor league baseball players. Three of you are going to the US unit. Four of you are going to the US unit. <clears throat> it turned to be, uh, it turned out weird. I, you know, I don't even know the term ironically to be a really good decision because everybody else who stayed behind had to do mortuary affairs, uh, which is a incredibly solemn, but just absolutely devastating duty. Uh, everybody I know who did that is, um, has gone through some real hardship. Um, but yeah, uh, first deployment was not particularly interesting. Um, you know, I feel <laughs>
0: there's nothing interesting about Kuwait ever period. Yeah. You know, it's it's sand. The- if you're not in Kuwait city, the whole place is sand.
1: It's, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome, um, you know, and it just, it was, it was a weird thing. Like I just tried to make myself useful. Um, you know uh, we needed uh, they called it force protection, We would have third country nationals come on base to clean out the shitters, uh, bring in potable water, those sorts of things. But obviously, they needed somebody to watch them to make sure they didn't do anything nefarious. So that was just me uh, riding in a truck with somebody from Pakistan and making sure they didn't put a bomb in the toilet. Um, We did get attacked, the surface-to-surface missile. Uh, you know, and that was without warning, even though we trained the siren to go off, you'd have a minute to put on your gas mask, get in a bunker, um, all of that. Um, you know, so me just being 19, my first exposure to combat is, a a, you know, a a 150 pound warhead exploding, you know, maybe about a half mile from my it was. it was pretty, it was pretty shocking. And the alarm would go off and and over and over again. Um, you know, out of everything I've seen since then, uh, snipers, uh, IDs, um, rockets, mortars. It it was really, really scary. You know, it it really makes me think like, uh, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in Ukraine and just the, the thought of just constant bombardment, you know, I've, I've lived for that, or at least the fear of it. And it's, it's really, it's really traumatizing and it's just, you know, it's not even considered combat as you know.
0: (laughs) Um, well, that was it. That was my second deployment for a better part of it, uh, during the closeout of Iraq and, uh, was there for all of 2011 and it was just the, the worst thing is having zero control right you just yeah. if you were going out it's because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and you had no idea that that was the wrong place at the wrong time right because mortars were just landing non-stop and we weren't doing anything to stop them and so it was a you know multiple time a week nighttime occurrence uh and and you know it's one of those things where when you think back to it, you know. It just became such reflex. The horn, you know, the siren goes off. You hop out of your bunk, jump out of your chew, run to the bunker, and you just sit there and you wait, you know, um, and in the hopes that, you know, the bunker doesn't get hit. Like, maybe I was better off staying in my room, you know, maybe, maybe the bunker is the wrong place to be. You never know. So it's it, that's some a, a different level of torment. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it certainly can be grating on you emotionally after a while.
1: Sure. You know, and uh, my my buddy was right near the explosion. Um, you know, he couldn't, couldn't really communicate for days because his hearing was just gone. Um, you know, that adds like a level of realness to it. And to your point, um, <clears throat> we didn't get any, we didn't get any alarm. So I'm wondering, was I just exposed to uh, chemical or biological agents? Again, it was a different time, didn't have different information, but I had a gas mask attached to my leg. I had needles I was supposed to inject in my thigh. If I was exposed, it, it was, it was really kind of psychologically uh, terrifying uh, in a way that somehow, you know, direct combat is less of, because I feel like for whatever reason you have more control of it. Right? Like I can run, I can dive, I can hide, I can shoot back. Right.
0: Well, and you also know where the bad guys are, you know, yeah. I don't have enough time to orient myself to look up and see a mortar or a rocket on its way in and figure out that I'm supposed to move. It's not a fly pop to left field. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> yeah. you, you don't get you don't get that much chance to get your eyes on it, so it's 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 a different world. How long did you stay in Kuwait? I
1: was there for five months um you know again, there were some rumblings that uh we might need be needed to stay again, the rest of the unit was um repurposed to do mortuary affairs, and um it was the burgeoning of the insurgency, so it was a one question of were we going to go home? do we need to stay here um, when,
0: when did you get there what five what time frame is this what month year?
1: I arrived in Kuwait in February of 2003, and okay. I left in July of 2003. So
0: the invasion of Iraq happens while you're there.
1: Yeah, and I, I didn't. I didn't even get to go into Iraq, <laughs> which is like really embarrassing. You know, you come home because of operational security. Um, you know, you don't get to tell your family where you are. And yes, I agree. Relative safely, like yes, we're being. We have surface-to-surface missiles coming in, but we also had Patriot missiles that worked very well. Um, and it's a very large base. So yes, the odds are low on some level, but you can't call home and be like, Hey, mom, I'm at cap Commando Kuwait. Everything's great. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Exactly.
1: Uh, so people were like, Tell me about Iraq. Tell me about Iraq. I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So that deployment ends. Uh, you come back and you're looking for another new assignment immediately.
1: Yeah. I, w- I wanted to go. Uh, Mark, you know, um, you know, I had that thing that I feel a lot of veterans get this, this, the sense of duty, always wanting to do more. Uh, no matter what happens, always wanting to do more. You know, uh, I think about somebody like Sergeant, uh, Corporal Sergeant Dakota Meyer, who earned the Medal of Honor, um, who had that famous beer summit with, uh, President Obama. And in the speech, you know, President Obama had to say, I'm telling you as your commander in chief, you did everything. You didn't need to do more. And here's a Medal of Honor winner who's still like, I feel like I should have given more. It's like, you did it, man. Uh, but I felt that I, I felt like I wanted to contribute. I wanted to go and, um, I I did. I did feel embarrassed that you know I had served as a marine and been deployed and not actually seen combat or whatever. So, um they were looking for volunteers called for something called civil affairs. Uh we had a crusty old staff sergeant who had done it in Kosovo and uh he was just taking volunteers and um you know I raised my hand. I I volunteered again. We went did to Did you know what civil affairs was? I had no idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so far you you're you're a cook which you weren't trained to do yeah. uh and now you're a civil affairs which you weren't trained to do. You've you've really skirted you've kind of cracked the code on the whole system here by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, like I said, very unusual time. Uh you know, in the Marines we say on our own program. Yeah, we were we we yeah. always do that pretty well. Um you know, they said uh you know, you'll be on patrol with the grunts and you'll be doing like nation building stuff. I, I didn't really believe them, but um it was it was pretty I got myself in more over, over my head a little bit, I think. How so? So uh, that deployment started, we were in uh, Camp Fallujah and, um, you know, there's this sense of we're going back to Iraq, but you know, this is kind of like a mop up mission. You know, we're not really going to do combat. We're going to hand out soccer balls and do goodwill stuff. And um, the numbers kind of reflected at the time. I, I, I know, um, you know, any number of uh, soldiers or service people dying is a big deal. But in February of 2004, there were only 11 service members who had died in Iraq. So we thought we were just relieving the army. We're going to be there for six months and then we're going to go home. But, uh, you know, that was uh, shortly after that, there was the um, uh, the Blackwater contractors were hung on the bridge in Fallujah uh, yep. at Camp Fallujah when that occurred. Um, the Abu Ghraib incident happened or came to light, um, and that inflames the insurgency as well. You know, I think it was General McChrystal who said pretty much everybody we tamed, uh talked about Abu Ghraib being something that recruited them to wanting to fight America. Um, it just became really violent, uh, some of the most violent months. Uh, April uh, of 2004, I think, was number two all time. Um, you know, I was in the uh, command element of the fourth civil affairs group. Um, in their job was basically to brief the, uh, general. Uh, I think it was Higgy at the time and Mattis was out there. Um, but our role was minimizing the impact on, uh, military operations on the civilian population. And what does that mean in the first battle of Fallujah? We would covertly resupply hospitals. We would escort humanitarian convoys into the city. We'd find place for, um, displaced civilian camps, refugee camps, if people needed them. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, It was really dangerous. (laughs)
0: Um, In in what way? I mean, you know, dangerous in the sense that getting caught meant you were, you were going to be, you know, detained and possibly beheaded or whatever, or is it just, you were actually in legitimate combat doing so or both.
1: So, um, we worked very closely with a Jordanian hospital, but they didn't want to be seen cooperating with the Americans because that would have made them a risk. Um, so we would go in at night covertly and, um, you know, there were insurgents in the area. One of the uh, officers called in an airstrike on the north side of the compound. Um, you know, I have Blackhawks flying over me. There was a cloverleaf at the time, not too far from there, right outside the city, where there was a lot of combat happening. And, um, you know, just, you know, frequent rockets, mortars, inbound, outbound, uh, some landing very close, you know, uh, close enough that I reach over my body, like, am I hit? <laughs> I've seen shrapnel fly over me. Um you know, and when we were escorting a humanitarian convoy in the city, there was a sniper fire. You know, we didn't know where it was coming from. Um, you know, so taking evasive action, all that, you know, it, it stuff that's never going to make it into a Hollywood movie. But for me, it was, it was pretty intense.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, the sniper fire is fun. It always
1: keeps you on your toes. Right. Uh, yeah. But that
0: said, so do you witness any sort of casualties while you're doing this?
1: Yeah, we saw some uh uh bodies that were not able to be reclaimed when we would go into Fallujah uh, particularly with the humanitarian convoys. Um if you remember the situation was very much uh reactive. Um you know, the Marines started uh uh doing some urban combat and kind of like infiltrating the city mm-hmm. and then there was kind of a uh international push to like okay, let's take a break, let's take a pause on this and figure out what happened. The the first battle of Fallujah basically set up the second battle because um they just wanted to reassess give an opportunity for non-combatants to get out of the city and, you know, just make a real plan on how to go through and make that happen.
0: Yeah. The, uh, my first deployment in no five, that, that was the one time when I, my, uh, the pucker factor really hit me is when I was told, okay, you gotta, you gotta convoy to Fallujah. And I'm like, you, you do what? You yeah. go there, You know, they're hanging people from bridges over there. I gotta go there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, that was the part. Well, and then it, it was in Oh five when they, when they, you know, the Marines were all, uh, it was a 14 of them, I think it was, um, that were executed there. And so, uh, you know, that was that's the one city that I really I mean, I drove two hours north on the road, you know, uh, with with less fear than I did on a 30 minute ride from Baghdad to Fallujah. It just it, it was a place that you did not want to be.
1: Yeah, those places have a reputation, uh, unfortunately earned, um, but it didn't end there. Uh, we had a um, tactical level civil affairs team. Again, that's just six to eight Marines who were embedded with a, um, uh, infantry battalion, um, who took, uh, who got hit and two of them had to go home. So I got sent out there as a combat replacement. That was actually, uh, with three seven, uh, and, um, um, Corporal Dunham, uh, was killed, uh, reacting to that. He was the, uh, Marine who leapt on a grenade to, uh, try and save his comrades. And my first day of the combat replacement was his memorial ceremony. So <clears throat> out of the fire into another fire. Um, but there, you know, I got to say, Mark, my job is was incredibly fascinating and I think vastly different from what most Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have. We uh, looked at the infrastructure. Um, that's uh, what makes the government go. Uh, it can be divided into categories, uh, power, electricity, healthcare, governance, security, um, education, uh, fuel, and it was kind of our job to um, visit different places, schools, uh, uh, power plants, phosphate fertilizer plant, you know, meet with the leadership and think, okay, how are we going to support you in getting this business going? But the thought was, if we could give people security and stability and um, give them jobs, that would give them less of a reason to want to fight or... Be uh, friendly with the insurgency. Um, you know, that was so, the
0: theory for like a decade, just in case anybody was wondering.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> same in Afghanistan for two decades. But you know, we're not we're not, not going to talk about the validity of it one way or another.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and we, if we we
0: install democracy, nobody will want to fight.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it is kind of kind of unfortunate in retrospect, uh, Mark. You know, I, I think that's the tragedy of it all. Um, you know, I, I first of all. Never not including the local populations, the regions destabilized in that. I mean, you're talking generational hardship. Um, but I, I think the vast majority of people who went over there did it and they tried their best to do what they were being asked to do, which was to create security and peace and freedom. Um, you know. And uh, I, I thought we were doing a lot of good at the time. We were building uh, uh, schools. We were getting people employed. Um, you know, we were meeting with the, the police chief, the mayors, everywhere we go. Again, this would be a different thing. Uh, we were welcomed. <laughs> Whereas like the door kickers, probably not. Um, but people knew we had money and we were awarding money for infrastructure contracts. So they're rolling out the red carpet. And, um, you know, we didn't have enough people to really do missions. You know, you, you need at least like, a certain amount of vehicles, a certain amount of up-armor weapons, but we get all sorts of uh, different grunts volunteering with us because they know they would actually get good food. They wouldn't have to eat an MRA. They could have authentic shawarma before anybody in the world, in the Western world, knew what shawarma was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: and, and it's, it's interesting because uh, when you talk about, you know, you did the best job that you could and you thought you were doing good. And, and anybody who's listened to this show routinely has heard me talk about the phrase small victories because I had that same challenge over there. Uh, when I was there on my first deployment, like I remember sitting down, I was a captain at the time and I was talking to a major and, and, uh, we had worked very closely day in and day out. And, uh, I respected the hell out of her. And, you know, I, I just flat out said, I said, I mean, you know, I, I look at a group of people that I'm training and on one day it's like, they look like they could actually survive in combat. And on the next day, they're failing to use a toilet and just going to the bathroom on the floor. It's like one step forward, two steps back. I'm like, I feel like we're just chasing our tail. Is this ever going to make a difference? And all she said to me was take small victories. It's all you can do is take the small victories and and uh, and just try to build more, more small victories on top of that. And, and look, I know when I left my first deployment, I remember writing this down in a journal that it was better than when I first arrived. And I guess that was enough for me. It, it does. I don't know what the finish line was supposed to be or is supposed to be or where it was supposed to be. I just know that I started here and I progressed forward. Whatever the measure is for that, uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily the one to decide, but I know I did my job and I know that the soldiers in the Iraqi army that I trained were better after I left, right, than before I got there. And so for me, that was enough of a victory to measure success, if you will. Uh, and know that you did a good job, but in the grand scheme of things, did it actually matter? I'd probably lean on no, it didn't matter, because look where they are now, but still, um, for that small patch of time that I had control over, I exerted the control I needed
1: to. Yeah, Mark, I got to tell you, you know, uh, my background as a writer, I got into it because I was mentally, emotionally uh, disturbed when I came home, you know, I went from Fallujah to being a waiter at Chili's, you want to talk about a manic transition, you know, you have by the way, there's
0: a certain level of danger at Chili's in general. It's just different. Who knows what they're putting in those baby back ribs, you know?
1: I mean, you want to talk about a mindfuck. We had a kid who was selling <laughs> sodas who got his arms chopped off and you got people screaming at you for like another Coke. Like, can you give me another Coke chief? It's like, whoa, dude. <laughs> My God. Um, you know, and it was, I was, I, I, I never get into the arguments of, who has it worse than whom? Um, I worked at Walter Reed for about eight years, teaching writing as part of an art therapy program for service members who have PTSD and TBI. And um, <clears throat> that experience became the genesis of my book because everybody I met who was an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, regardless of if they were Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines, Coast Guard, uh, whether they were an operator or whether they were um, some sort of support role, there was there's just a crazy universality to this experience. And, and one that was shared uniquely by all of us, <clears throat> just the nature of not having a draft and being at war for 20 years. Um, but the unique challenge I had was I didn't get to be with my battle buddies. You know, the, uh, I came home and it's like, okay, dude, go be a civilian. Uh, turn off everything that just happened, everything you experienced and just live your life as if nothing profound uh, just occurred to you. Um, there was no conversations about PTSD, mental, emotional health, those sort of things we did a two week decompression time where we weren't allowed to do anything on the way back from Iraq. And I was like, okay, you know, that was probably more challenging than day-to-day operations because you just want to go home. Right. right. Um, you know, so I got into creative stuff because um, you know, it was a way of helping me write, reflect, make sense of some of the places I had been, some of the things I had done, um, you know, and I, 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 think I had squared all that away and I had been well and happy and made my peace with everything. But now that it's all ended there's a certain amount of closure, you know, and the, the global war on terror, obviously there's military operations going to be happening everywhere forever. But, you know, the, the, these wars, the, the global war on terror, the, 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 the big part. The main two,
0: the big two. <laughs> um,
1: you know, it just caused me to do a lot of reflection. And, uh, you know, there was a time I would say I was very proud of my service and being a veteran. I'm still proud and I'm still thankful for the experience overall. But, uh, you know, there is this the sense of like, what was it for, man? You know what was the
0: point? Yeah, uh, you know, I I try not to go down that rabbit hole. I understand it, but you know, for me, it's one of those things where, um, you know, a, a lot of those things were out of my control. Right? I mean, I, I I had two deployments. I did the very best that I could. I don't I don't think I left, for lack of a better term, you know, I I, I left it all on the field. You know, i there, there, there were there were no points left on the board for me. Like I did everything I was supposed to do, and then some. Uh, and I'm I, I'm okay with that. I'll let history be the judge of what our impact is, was, and should be. I mean, I, I got very annoyed at the Monday morning quarterbacking at the, after the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Uh, and, and it was being done by tons of people who, um, never spent more than 24 hours there in any given period, uh, which I thought was a bunch of crap. Um, and, and for those of us who live through combat and for those of us who, um, understand the notion that even if nothing bad happens to you while you're over there, even if you come back with all your fingers and toes and limbs and everything intact, the, the person you were before combat dies and you're never the same again. The, the, the experience in and of itself doesn't allow you to be the same person. If, if you went through anything over, even if you just live there for a year, um, there is a there is a chance that you'll never be the same again. And it's hard to – I don't want other people judging that for me. That's what, what kind of bothers me. Um, you don't get to put in context the service and sacrifice that we put out there based off of some political notion of a win and a loss. Like that I thought was a bunch of crap.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, you know, you just talk about lack of context. I mean, so many people just have. You know, I, I I don't know. I read somewhere most Americans haven't even been to more four states. <laughs> you know, what is what is your frame of reference? If everything you've learned is something you saw on a subreddit somewhere, right?
0: Yeah. I, when you when you leave Iraq uh, for the second time, well, the first time you were there, but the second deployment, um, and you come home, do you know? Are you done with the military? Like, do you feel like you're done at that point? Was the experience enough to have emotionally worn you out?
1: No, no. I uh, I, I volunteered for a third tour um you know i don't mean to be dramatic about it but everybody who i got mono which was kind of divine intervention i'm at like the age where i'm not supposed to get mono you know 23 and um uh you know i wasn't (laughs) wasn't making out with a lot of girls man (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) uh but everybody went in my stead uh you know got pretty fucked up or wound up dying so i kind of took that as like divine intervention you know i Got all my fingers, I got my toes, a uh, modicum of sanity. Uh, actually, one of the Marines um, who was my officer in tri- charge—you're you, probably familiar with—he uh, was a motivational speaker named Justin Constantine. He actually wound up just uh, passing away recently.
0: Yeah,
1: he—he uh, uh, he got shot in the back of the head. Um, you know, I just promoted the major, and that made him a target on the battlefield. And if I hadn't got mono, I would have been right there with him. Um, you know, he was an awesome man. Uh, just take a moment to make a tribute. I went to visit him at the hospital after all that. And he was, he was just concerned about everybody else. He wasn't even worried about himself They didn't have a face and he's asking about everybody else. It was really moving.
0: Wow. Uh, so divine intervention steps in and you say, Hey, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to even hang, even though i spent most of my time on active duty, I'm just going to hang up the reserve thing as well.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, at, at the time I had been meeting a lot of people who, um, have gotten out of the service, uh, just for different things. Uh, again, my Marine Corps experience was awesome. I was able to do toys for tots. Uh, you know, people think that's hanging outside best bell with best buy with a bell begging for toys. Like, no, we were in DC and I was getting invited to hang out with like executives, CEOs, their personal parties, uh, hobnobbing with the literal 1%. Um, you know, I made friends with like the CEO of IBM at the time. Um, you know, I'm meeting, uh, GS-15s, executives and governments. I'm hanging out at the National Democratic Club, uh, drinking and, um, you know, singing karaoke with, like, the whip at the time. So it was a pretty wild experience, but it just it introduced me to a lot of people. And, um, you know, I met a vet who was just very jaded. He was a, uh, he had some sort of air crew mission and he was telling me he had a valor device and, um, you know, he was getting out and he was having problems with VA and his paperwork. And he, he just felt very mistreated. And, um, you know, you get to those points where it's like, okay, contracts going up, am I going to stay again? It causes that reflection. And and for me, I I realized, (laughs) will I do four years or 40 at some point? I got to figure out who Dario is not Dario, the Marine. Those are different things. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just having done the experience, uh, you know, I am always reminded of the line from fight club on a long enough timeline. Everybody's survival rate is zero. Like, why am I just going to keep doing this? Um, you know, at the time I had felt like I did my part, um, you know, and, and that became not true when the wars just kept dragging on and people just kept going and going, but I, I did get to work with the military and wounded warriors at Walter Reed for eight years. And that's, that's how I was able to stay in the fight mark. The Marine Corps didn't need fat 34 year old Corporal Dario anymore, but you know, I ha- I have Navy SEALs who've told me now that I have writing in my life, I don't want to put a bullet in my brain and that's just awesome. You know, nothing I did, you know, just being a part of a program that I have a very small role in working with some of the best mm-hmm. therapists and clinicians in the planet and just giving people the tools to help fix themselves. It was, so, it was really awesome stuff.
0: I mean, you, you sort of stumble on this opportunity here. Um, but you know, working with the veterans is, I mean, it keeps you as connected as you can be to the fight. Right. And you realize that there, there there's a whole second half of this, you know, like the first half is the actual combat. The second half is repairing everything after the fact. Um, so, but where does the the writing come in for you in that interim? I mean, I know you said you went to work at Chili's, but, you know, you said you were a bad, did you get your degree while you were in the Marines, while you were going along somewhere in, over in Iraq? How has that whole thing come to, come to pass?
1: No, I uh, got out of the Marines and I, I didn't have a plan and I thought I was supposed to go to school. Um, you know, I didn't actually qualify for the GI Bill because I didn't pass it to 2009, Um <laughs> So I found out that, <laughs> this is a true story, Mark, I found out that Connecticut will give free tuition to anybody who served overseas, regardless of their state of origin. Um, so I went to tour all the state universities in Connecticut. The first one I went to had a giant Iwo Jima memorial or a mini Iwo Jima memorial on their campus. Um, so I was like, okay. <laughs> and I just went in and uh, they they took me on the spot. Um I needed a or place or divine
0: intervention, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I needed a place to live. Uh so they uh I was able to become a resident assistant. You know, I felt that was just kind of like being like an NCO, you know. I'm just gonna take care of people, make sure they don't hurt themselves or each other. Um <laughs> and uh I meet this woman. Uh, you know, I had been doing writing, I had been blogging and you know, putting my feelings out there and I got a lot of encouragement. Um, you know, and I was just not that I was good. I was not. I was a very bad writer when I first started. But I, I had a fresh opinion. There weren't too many people who had come from the battlefield and were writing about those experiences. And uh, I meet a woman who used to teach at Hopkins. She's at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, she asked to see some of my writing. And she was like, Gary, I think your story is uh, myopic, egotistical, and boring. And I don't know if you have a commercial project. So I signed up for a class. And uh, she kind of looked at me like, what are you doing here? I'm like, you know better teach me and uh she became a mentor and dear friends and that's really what put me on the path for becoming that's a writer That's awesome.
0: Does yeah. she still does she now still think your story is myopic and egotistical and boring?
1: No, no and I actually I will tell you this. I this is a story <laughs> I don't tell I don't tell very often. Uh I, I did get involved in a um uh the Marine Corps at the time had this thing called Marine Corps for life where you could meet uh people who had gotten out of the service who also had the marine identity and they could be um kind of like professional mentors and one of them was like dude your story sucks. You need to stop syndicate. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, right before the pandemic, he actually was like, dude, you made it. I'm just so impressed with what you've been able to do. And he actually hooked me up with a freelance project. So it's, it's pretty rewarding. I, you know, I, I think this is probably true of a lot of military people. Uh, just stubbornness to it, man. <laughs> I mean, I, now I'm curious to read the story. Like now I I genuinely want to read it
0: for, see how bad if it does suck. If I'm of the same opinion as everybody else.
1: Well, I won't show you an early draft, but uh, I'll show you like where it's at now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm just, you know, I I
0: mean, if, listen, if it's, it's based in historical fact, right. It's your personal story or.
1: Yeah. I I, I didn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the education of being a writer. I, I had an interesting perspective and I was honest and that can help you tell a good story, but you know, I didn't know what made up a scene. I didn't know point of view and how to use it effectively. I didn't know how to create dramatic tense uh, stakes and create tension and, um, you know, use characters intentionally. There's so much to a uh, uh, master's of arts experience where you just really approach it like a craft, like a skill versus just a talent or innate ability and it helps you really rehone and refocus yeah, that. And, you you know.
0: just reaffirmed my desire to never write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a great storyteller. I, I I like the verbal telling, but if you ask me to write it down, I'm gonna I'm gonna write like I speak and that doesn't always translate well.
1: Mark, and uh that's a very weird, interesting thing. I, I became a writer <clears throat> and I was asked to be on a podcast speaking about um, you know, a, a, a experience I had where I did unfortunately one time consider suicide. And uh it's weird. When you write it, it's like okay, it's out there. You can do with it whatever you want. But telling it Speaks into existence and creates a, a certain different sense of ownership, which is really powerful. So, very much respect for you, but I do think they are very different skills for that. Oh,
0: basically. 100%. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's worlds apart. Um, you know, that old thing when you met, ma- what a therapist say? When you're mad at someone, write them an email, but don't send it. Get all your emotions out on paper. <laughs> you know, yeah. write them and don't, just don't send it. Unfortunately. I've never not hit send. Uh, that's my problem, but we're, we're different <laughs> podcast altogether. Uh, anyway, so how do you end up at Johns Hopkins? Uh,
1: again, uh, my mentor at central Connecticut state, Mary okay. Allen, she had been a part of the program. Um, you know, I didn't really necessarily want to move back to Baltimore. Um, but you know, it was an opportunity I couldn't say no to, I, I'm pretty sure she called up the director was like, hey, just give this kid a chance. Right. Um, you know, so I, I, I was able to get in and, um, I worked my ass off. Um, just literally, that was it. I I didn't have a plan B. I wanted to be a writer. That's all I wanted to do. And, uh, I used my GI bill and I took out student loans and for two years, I just treated it like a fellowship where I did was write, read writing, study writing, uh, and just get involved as much as I could. And, um, a program like that, uh, I hate to say it, it gives you, it gives you, um, legitimacy that you wouldn't have. Otherwise, nobody cared when I said Dario comma writer, when I said Dario candidate at Johns Hopkins university writing program, they're like, okay, I'll listen to what you have to say. Sure. Uh, and in a program like that, you're meeting editors. They come to your, your class. You know, to me, that's an excuse to be like, Hey, thanks for coming to class. Do you mind if I pitch you something? Um, and again, just taking skills I learned in the military, uh, you, you take one success, you reinforce it, you move to the next target, make it bigger, you branch out and you grow. Uh, I wrote a small blog, um, for a guy that got seen by another writer who gave me an opportunity to write a blog for the Washington Post. Uh, when Bin Laden was killed, I was in the Washington Post Rolodex. They called me up, asked me if I would write a reflection about that as a Marine. Um, you know, and it's like a small blog to a bigger blog to an opportunity to write about one of the biggest events in the 21st century for one of the papers of record. Um, and it doesn't happen if you just don't put yourself out there and, and take those successes and grow and just keep moving up and uh, building your networks and making those connections. Really, honestly, just very basic skills I learned in the military, connecting with different people, learning who they are and how you can work together and how you can support each other.
0: Uh, and just for the record, I mean, you, you mentioned The Washington Post. Your work has also been featured in The Washingtonian, The New York Times, The Guardian, uh, Mike.com, NPR, uh, BBC. I mean, it, your work is everywhere. So. Uh, if you were looking for legitimacy folks, if that was as if Hopkins wasn't enough, there you go. There's a, there's more legitimacy for everybody, but was there any part of you as you make this transition, was there any part of you pulling you back saying, I, I want to still be a Marine or were you able to sort of like sever ties clearly? Uh,
1: no, no, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, continue to serve however I can, um, you know, I wanted to become an embedded journalist somewhere uh, in Afghanistan reporting what was going on. Um, you know, I was teaching adjunct at the time and, uh, you know, I was getting, having students come off the battlefield and their their stories were just blowing my mind, Mark. And, and maybe you have some more frame of reference than I do. I'm sure you do because you've talked to lots and lots of people. But even when Iraq was really, 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 really bleak, I still think we had a sense of what we were trying to do and how we were trying to do that, I think. That North Star got lost with Afghanistan vets a long time ago and um, in an impossible way. You know, I had my buddy, my co-RA at Central Connecticut State wound up becoming a Marine officer and deploying to Afghanistan. He he was telling me, I don't know what my flag officers are telling me. I don't know what to communicate to the troops. And I only have a vague sense of what we're trying to happen. You know, so I wanted to go out there and report on that um, because I think there was a information vacuum. Um but ultimately I was never able to find somebody to support me. And, um, you know, I, I thought about going back and thought about going back, but you know, I just got met meeting, meeting vets, um, you know, at university, uh, you know, one of my colleagues or one of my fellow students at Johns Hopkins is a gentleman named Ron Caps. Um, he started this organization called the veterans writing Project, of which I'm a founding member. He was literally like after class, like Hey, Dario, I have this idea to take what we're learning here and give it to vets for free. Do you want to be a part of that? I said, hell yeah, just signed up immediately. And um, that led to our work at Walter Reed. We worked with thousands of wounded warriors. We've taught in 22 different states to veterans of every age, um, you know, and their family members. I taught a workshop at Baltimore County Public Libraries where I had a rosy derivative. You know, I, I think those experiences in a way are just so rewarding to help other veterans learn the craft of storytelling and how to tell their own stories because um, it's not a zero sum game. I want every veteran writer to have a ton of success. I want all of their stories to be told. So the American people understand it. <laughs> they have uh conceptualization and they understand their role and impacts that they can have on the veteran community and uh, political affairs and international affairs and those sorts of things. Um, you know, it's an unpopular opinion, but war is kind of a democratic process. The, the military doesn't choose for it. The people we are elected are the ones who make those decisions. Yeah. Uh, so if you're pissed about Iraq or Afghanistan, why'd you yawn about it for the last 20 years? Right.
0: Yeah. Why, why'd you vote for the same people for the last 20 years also, uh, begs the question. And you and I are, are in the same industry, right? Of, of telling stories. You're just doing it via written and I'm doing it via audio, video. And, and, uh, the point is, is that these stories absolutely need to be told. Uh, right. and the, the one thing, and I've said this often on here, you know, and, and, for for those who are fans of the show and listen routinely, you know that uh, this is one of the things I'm more proud of, but surprised that when I started the hazard ground was that I never thought about chronicling history, but that's exactly what is going on here. You know, in, in 20, 30 years, when people want to look back on the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, they can come right here and hear firsthand accounts Uh the same way they can read from your writers firsthand accounts of their experience. And I think we are at, at such a time, you know, uh, we, we don't have firsthand, we have very few firsthand accounts of the civil war. We have very few firsthand accounts of even Vietnam, uh, and the Gulf War, because we never really were in that space where we wanted to talk about them so much. We are in a different world now where it's, we encourage people to talk about it because of the trauma that, that, that co- coincides with combat. Uh, it was just something we didn't do before. We patted our, our boys on the back and said, welcome home. Or, In the case of Vietnam veterans, spit on them, whatever, but you get the point. You know, it was just not something that we do. Um, and you know, you you talk about your, your letter to the Washington post, you glossed over a little bit, at least some of the details. And I want to bring them to light because I think this is important, but you talk about a lot of the friends and the people that you knew that you lost, uh, and the guilt that you felt. When do you come to grips with your own sort of, I mean, you know, PTSD, whatever you want to label it as. When do you come to grips with that on your own and and how did writing sort of help you through
1: it? Well, Mark, I think some of the honest thing is, uh, while I will say that I'm happy and I'm mentally well, and, um, you know, I'm, uh, uh blessed enough to have resources, uh, therapeutic if I need them or if I want them, which I currently don't feel like I do. um, you know, I'm reminded with uh, every year that, of those losses, you know, particularly around this time of year. And um, it doesn't affect me every day, but in some ways it's, it's going to hurt forever, uh, you know, to think about those sacrifices. <clears throat> but the writing, if you're writing, particularly if you're doing true, true stories, I mean, it's really kind of a therapeutic process by design. You're writing about a past version of you as a future version of you, and it forces you to reflect, make meaning, uh, craft sense, um, you know, ask those tough questions. Why did I feel this way back then? Uh, what was I doing and why? How did I feel then? And how do I feel now? And also how does that impact my day-to-day life? Um, any creative, uh, and it doesn't have to be writing. Uh, again, at Walter Reed, uh, the service people would make masks. They would make these, uh, take these plaster masks, you know, Roman style and they would uh, the, the, the direction was to create something that speaks to your experience. <clears throat> um, you know, and you can read about this on uh, National Geographic. Uh, these these masks are very famous at this point, And, you know, they've done literary analysis about like themes and topics and all of that. Um, but there's an excellent TED talk. <laughs> Completed by my uh, friend uh, Melissa Walker, who was uh, uh, the lead art therapist and program manager of this program at uh, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, and she talks about this 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 service person was haunted by this experience of um, they were under attack, and uh, he was in a bunker, and uh, somebody injured with a bloody face came into the bunker, and um, just that image just haunted that person in their dreams every day, everywhere they went. But when you <clears throat> Take something that's put in your, in your lizard brain, uh, you know, your limbic system, your evolutionary impulse. It's like imprinted there for good reason, right? Like if something traumatic happens, your body wants to remember it. Um, and you use your higher brain functioning, uh, writing, art, music, dance, whatever to take it. You're able to take something toxic, um, something kind of primordial, uh, uh, hard to access because when you access a traumatic memory, your physiology reflects it. Your cortisol grows up, your adrenaline grows up. Um, and allows you to shape it, make meaning of it. I, I, I don't mean to overstate. I'm not a clinician, but I've talked with a lot of smart ones and worked with them. And they say in general, yes, Dario, that's an okay way to to express this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I I hope that's not scientific. It's it's kind of a no doubt thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. expressing myself makes me feel better. Right. Um, but the really cool thing about the program there is like they're, they're doing like the quantitative, qualitative, arts-based, uh, uh, research to, to, to validate that. And, um, with amazing results. And Mark, it's not a, you know, it's not a magic, uh, eraser. Uh, you know, while well, I did have some vets who'd be like, wow, now that I have writing in my life, I'm, I feel like I can deal with my demons. You know, some people be like, yeah, I was fucking dumb. <laughs> I don't understand how poetry is going to help me. Uh, whatever. Right. Guys. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, all all shapes and sizes, right? Um, so let's talk about retire the colors, um, and how this whole project came about. Uh, I mean, obviously, look, from your time in Iraq to working with veterans and getting intimate and close with them and understanding their individual stories along the way. My guess is, you know, you have all these recesses of stories in the back of your head and you just want to kind of find a way to put them all together. Like what's the genesis of retire the coast because technically you didn't write anything for it. Right. Am I right in saying that it was everybody else's story that you sort of conglomerated, if you will.
1: Yeah. I just, uh, you know, my, my biggest intent Mark is I, I got into writing because I was mentally messed up and I wanted to communicate how I was feeling. I didn't have the ability to be at a bar and have that conversation with people. Right. But I was able to sit down and focus it and shape it and say, Hey, please read this. Um <laughs> You know, I realized uh, uh, you and I represent a generation of uh, men and women, many of whom can't, won't, or don't want to talk about their experiences. So that makes it even more important for those stories to get out. Um, with less than 1% of Americans having served in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's this incredible divide, cultural, social. Uh, you know, it's a, most Americans have not met a combat vet, for instance, or have a personal relationship with that person. So... Um, I've always been interested in gapping those worlds, but also just making it clear, like, I've, no, duh, war doesn't affect just the warfighter. Um, and and it doesn't have to be, I was a Navy SEAL and I'm affected. There are people in support roles who are getting rocketed, mortared. They're part of a, a complex geopolitical affair that they have to make sense of, reflect on. It affects their spouses. It affects their friends. It affects their community. <laughs> so I just wanted to curate, um, a collection that kind of explored all of that from as many different angles as possible. Um, you know, there's some uh, uh, people who talk about decisions on the battlefield. Uh, one of them is a uh, wife of a combat medic who has nightmares and she has to, like, she's getting triaged in, in his sleep, you know, just all sorts of really scary stuff. I was able to include international perspective that I was proud of um, the cultural attaché of Iraq wrote a perspective of her experience uh, uh, in Iraq as, you know, somebody on the ground, but like civilian Iraqi. Um, There was somebody who his son's best friend, who he took in for a time, who was, was a Marine who was killed, you know, just really connecting all those sorts of um, um, threads between how the military experience, whether you're aware of it or not, is not just affecting those two point, those one percenters of people who've been over there, but also communities families, uh, culture, all sorts of other things. And um, that was pretty much what I wanted to do. Um, I I did fight with the publisher a little bit. Uh, Ultimately, they wanted to do stories that were redemptive of quality, um, but that's not my agenda. Um, War Cannon does fuck people up for life. And I think those are valid stories too. And if that doesn't make you feel good, I I don't give a shit. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't able to get those in, right?
0: (laughs) Uh, Very well put. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, just write that down as a quote. Uh, to warrior fucks people up for life. If you don't like it, I don't give a shit. There you go.
1: Yeah, um, and again, I never want to per- perpetuate the myth of the broken veteran. And I, I know a lot of VSOs no. are dealing with these challenges, but like, no shit. There are some people I know. And I know, you know, who will never be the same people and will not be able to function on the same level because of the experiences they have. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, I, I don't think that, see, again, you know, people who don't have the depth of understanding for it like you and I can understand that a lot easier than many other people can uh and, and like they know it but they don't know it know it like it, you, you they can't they can only empathize they can't sympathize and and i think there's a there's a gap there which is which is tough to bridge um for certain people not for everybody um there there are people who dive in you know uh and and really try to immerse themselves in the in the post-combat experience and try to understand what veterans are going through. I've run into some of them who have never put on a uniform a day in their life, but they work with veterans every day and they're really good at it. Um, and then there are others who, who, who not so much, you know, I mean, and to your point, you know, full disclosure for me personally, and I've talked a little bit about this on here, you know, I, I didn't really dive into my issues until 15 years after combat, you know, like in my first combat experience. Like I, it wasn't until recently that I sat down and finally, sought the help that I didn't realize I needed a long time ago. Uh to really start, you know, peeling back the layers of of the combat experience for me. You know, and then you think about it and I realize it's just like people have asked me, but I've never really answered the question. Until you're forced to sit there and tell the actual stories the way that they were recounted for factual purposes, for medical and you know, documentation, things of that nature, you, you know, you, you're, you're digging, you're peeling off band-aids that you didn't really know still had wounds underneath them. Uh, and and that's a difficult experience for a lot of people.
1: And, and even being in the space and doing this work uh, like you, I've talked to thousands of vets and exactly about their experiences. Right. <clears throat> um, and I've read hundreds, if not thousands of stories. Uh, there's an outstanding, probably one of the best essays I've read about the Iraq and Afghan ex- experience a guy named Brian Box. Uh, wrote a piece for uh, New Republic called Ghosts of War in the Wisconsin Forest. And, um, you know, it's just about him trying to find peace uh, by protecting nature after his experiences. That's a very surface level thing. But there's a line in there where he talks about uh, friends he served with who he doesn't know if they're alive or dead. And I realized I have friends I've served with who I didn't live or dead. And I don't think that's a normal experience. People that I intimately knew on some level who I have no idea where they are. I have no idea if they're OK. And I have no way of getting in contact with them. Um, you know that's something I never realized was weird because <laughs> that was just that was just my world.
0: no, I mean listen it, it's funny because I'm literally going through this right now as as, as we speak. Uh, I had to go through a similar experience. I had to get in you know for verification purposes for the VA, I had to get a statement from somebody who was in the vehicle with me when we hit an IED, and I thought you know we were we were friends and we kept in contact you know shortly after we got back. Um, I thought I'd just go on Facebook and find him. Nope. Wasn't there. Right. And start just Googling around and looking for him. Nope. Can't find him. Nope. Don't know where he is. This, that and the other. Uh, and eventually I just had to start hitting up other people. I knew that knew and I'm like, have you spoken to so-and-so in, in, in a, any given period of time? And eventually I found him and he was in Canada. <laughs> go figure. Um, yeah. Yeah. you know, that, that, that experience, it's kind of weird. It's like, okay, you know, we, we, we literally bled next to each other. Uh, and I don't, even rem- I don't even know where you are.
1: Mark, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of layers there um, and just a lot of things to unpack. And, um, you know, just even being in the veteran support space, uh, just seeing what's not there, what needs to be there. Um, you know, it, it, it makes me ha- happy to have my small role in this as a veterans advocate. Helping other vets tell their stories. Um, you know, we're, we're working with veterans in different capacities and uh, different roles that I have. Um, but, but it also just makes you aware of the need and the impact and, and how underserved it, it actually is. And, um, you know, when looking at that through different layers and intersections, how complicated it could be for, um, people who don't look like you and me. Um, okay. it's just really. It's, it's just so much. It's just so much. But, um, you know, for me, it really starts with let's help people tell those stories. Let's get those stories out and let's help people create awareness and understand. Um, you know, I taught, uh, for many years at CCBC. Um, you know, I teach adjunct faculty at different places and, uh, oftentimes I would have them read a nonfiction book about the Iraq or Afghanistan experience and, um, Surprise, 100 out of 100, I'm batting a thousand on this, people who did not know anything about the military now have faults and feelings about Iraq and Afghanistan, the veteran experience, the military experience. It's kind of the gift of literature. It's a, a uniquely interesting vehicle for um, connecting people and helping people understand each other and their experiences, which is the most fundamental human thing we do.
0: a 100 percent. Um so you are actually, as I mentioned at the top of the show, working on a screenplay right now. Uh, what's the process of this? What's the story about? What do you hope to get from it? Do we, do we expect to see Dario Batista on the big screen soon?
1: I, I hope so. It'd be awesome. Um, mm-hmm. I worked uh, very closely with a co-writer, uh, uh, my friend Jeremy Schiller. Um, one of my hot fire takes in the veteran space is like, it's great that veterans can and do help each other, but we need to bring in more outside people. Um, Cause we have our own ways of doing things, our own sense of cultural norms and procedures. It's very useful to have somebody who doesn't have those experiences and ask like, what <laughs> you did that? Why is that? And it impacted you how? Things like we just kind of generally understand that might need more clarification for another audience. So it was very important to me to include my friend, Jeremy, who's a great writer, writer and a great editor. Um, and again, uh, I, I think... The military experience, especially stories that we talk about on here, stories of combat, being overseas, dealing with all the the many implications of that for uh, the people who went over, uh, the people impacted. It's just such a monumental, massive thing. People can and will be writing stories, telling stories in books for hundreds of years, and it's just kind of inaccessible. So I thought if I could write a, a story that's funny that might be a better way of connecting people to that experience. So uh, the elevator pitch is it's basically jarhead meets road trip. Uh, service member comes back from overseas. Um, he's returning home after getting from the service and he goes on a buddy adventure with his uh, best friends where they go to Las Vegas, and get drunk and act stupid and <laughs> they meet a girl. Um, but the, the thing that is not said is the real mission for the road trip, which is, He's, he has a deaf letter from one of his friends who died that he wants to get to the family along the way. Wow.
0: So where are you with it?
1: Uh, it's a different world, Mark. Uh, you know, I understand um, a lot of
0: pitching, a lot, lot, lot of pitches.
1: It, it's getting it out, getting it different competitions, people saying, Hey, it's great. I like it. And then nothing happens. <laughs> uh, if somebody out there wants to help with support. Uh, I'm not too proud to beg, but, um, you know, I've unfortunately, uh, uh, for myriad reasons, I'm in a doctoral program right now. I'm studying education. Um, you know, that keeps me pretty busy. A bunch of other things I haven't been able to promote it as much as I could, but I, I would love to get that story out there. Um, and I, I do think the approach we took, which is to make it basically a comedy, you know, there's drama in there, obviously. Um, I, I think can help <clears throat> bridge gaps and, in, and, in, and, in, and, Make that experience a little more accessible, understandable, and hopefully a way that people would would understand because I, I get it, Mark, like the world sucks, man. There, there's shit everywhere. there's shit in our our, our adopted home city of Baltimore. Um, there's shit uh, affecting uh, people overseas right now enduring uh, war, being bombed every day. Um, there's people starving. there's so many challenges and uh, you know th- th- I think you know what we're talking about on here is one. And I, I think people just are overwhelmed to care. There's just so much going on. It it, it just kind of makes you desensitized to stuff. But I, I do really believe in the power of story in helping to bridge those worlds, create awareness and create understanding um, in ways that obviously I would champion. I, I want people to know about the veteran experience and care about
0: it. What do you miss most about the Marine Corps?
1: I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott, Sk- <laughs> would you... Would you, like, would you, would you not do it if you did it over? Right. Right. Uh, or was, was it a good decision? Which, of course, I'm also ultimately like, yeah, I went from 1.88 GPA to Hopkins graduate. Like that was, that's directly attributable <laughs> to what the, the Marine Corps. Was. Um, my job is civil affairs, even though we went into the futility of, um, nation building by military force and how it ultimately doesn't work was probably the most rewarding time that I, I've ever had because the work we did impacted thousands of people and in ways that to your point at the time did make their lives better. And that was immensely rewarding. Um, you know, and, um, I liked that. <laughs> and I liked when you pare everything down, you know, you don't deal with the day-to-day trivialities, what's trending on Twitter, um, you know, kind of the banality of, world existence in a very privileged country and it's all about just taking care of everybody around you and doing your job as best you can um there's a liberating sense of um appreciating life in a different way uh that i, I know you know and i know many veterans experience and uh, again something that's hard to express you miss miss those experiences what's
0: the what's the biggest skill i know you've said repeatedly that you know your writing is attributed to being a marine Uh, and your ability to turn it around, but what's, what's the biggest skill that the Marines gave you that you applied routinely when it came to writing? Was it just persistence or is there something that you took with you that you always relied on?
1: So it's not just the Marine Corps, Mark. And if you'll bear me for a quick aside, uh, (laughs) I think every service person because of their veteran experience is overqualified to be a writer should they choose. And I will explain to you why. Um, Number
0: one, you got my you got my curiosity.
1: (laughs) Um, And I saw this. I saw this every week at uh, Walter Reed. We would have service people write and they've never written before. And I'm like, that's a fucking awesome story. How'd you do that? (laughs) Um, Number one, uh, stories are about people. Um, And when you're in the military, it forces you to understand people in a different way than almost any other civilian job I've had. Uh, you know, I bartend part time. If my co bartender is having a pissy day, I just don't bother them and don't talk to them. But when you're a leader in the military, and particularly in combat scenarios, who do you give who who's the guy you give the machine gun? Who walks on point? Who's the radio guy? Also, what's going on in their lives that might potentially impact their abilities? Where are they from? Are they having uh, disagreements with family back home, whatever it may be? You just, you just think about people in such a fundamentally different way. Um, and you meet people from every walk of life. So it all becomes inspiration tools that you can build upon. Number two, uh, stories are about conflict. I don't say this lightly. What stakes are bigger than life or death? Literal life or death. Um, you know, uh, uh the conflicts of, uh, just trying to survive dealing with military hierarchy, bureaucracy, sometimes systems that work against you. Again, these all become um, understandings of the frameworks of stories that uh, uh, can add to your toolkit to help you become a better writer. Number three, military is uh, teaches you really quickly to figure out what's actually going on, right? Like if I'm writing about um, uh, uh, something going on in a house, you know, Writers who have a different experience, they might talk about the trees outside the house, the, the wind blowing through the grass, the, the, the moon coming through the clouds as you're walking into it. And it's like, yeah, I get it. You're establishing a, a setting, you're establishing a shot, but like, what's going on, right? When you're in the military and you go into a room, you get pretty figured out what it's good. Good writing is in general is crisp, is economical and it's precise. And the military teaches you those things. Number four, <clears throat> um, it's discipline. Absolute discipline. When you are writing something of novel length, you are spending thousands of hours with yourself, or if you're obnoxious like me, uh, other people. Yes, I'm that guy who goes to Starbucks and, uh, tries to be all cool while I'm doing it, but <clears throat> it's, it's a lonely affair. It's, a, it's a really lonely, challenging thing. Um, and I think. Uh, the, the routines, the disciplines, the sense of fortitude that everybody gets just being in the military and in the day to day regiment of it is a tool that you can use to influence your writing. So everybody out there who is a writer should become a writer, uh, is a veteran, should become a writer because your stories are important and we can help you at veteranswriting.org. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, uh, I agree on all of those points. I would counter, however, I've been in some meetings and some briefings with some awfully long-winded people who do not understand the point of be brief be brilliant and be gone, uh, very much. So, so yeah. not, though, not a probably not the best writers. I'm just going to say I've, I've served with a couple of them. I know a couple of them now and, uh, man, oh man, they make, they, they make a, a meeting that should last 45 minutes, two hours. And I'm just ready to, to hit myself in the head with a tack hammer. <laughs> in general, Mark, in general. Yes. In gen- general, you are correct. Yes. Uh, I, I, for the record, and I, I pride myself on this and extremely brief. I say very little in meetings. I, I, I hold, I hold to the adage that, uh, I am a genius until I open my mouth and tell people that I'm not. So as long as I am quick and brief and to the point and get out quickly, everybody's all right. If they have questions, I'll ask other than that. I'm fine. I don't need to tell you my life story.
1: We're yeah. There. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> I'm always about better uh, proponent of, uh, this should have been an email instead, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, guys, check out all Dario's uh work and information at Dario D Dario D D I B A T T I S T A. Uh DarioDBatista.com. That's your website. It's got uh, all your books and information, contact information. They can reach out to you there uh and a little bit more on your biography and, and some of the other places that your work has been published published. So I, I suggest you guys go to his website and look at him there and, and catch up, man. Listen, I, I it's been great talking to you. Uh, I'm glad we connected on Twitter. I, I hope to continue to, to, to work with a relationship with you going forward. It's been a lot of fun hearing your story. And certainly, uh, I'm glad that you've inspired so many people along the way. You know, we say this a lot on the show that what you did overseas was super important, but sometimes it's the work you're doing after the fact that will have the greater impact. You know, we, Whether we won the war or lose the war may not matter in the long term if there are people like you out there taking care of the veterans on the back end And allowing them to live a fuller life that they might not have had the opportunity otherwise. That may be the win that we're all looking for that we can quantify and we know we
1: can get. And and people like you, Mark, and and it's an excellent point. If if you're feeling some sort of way after Afghanistan withdrawal, everything that's going on, find a vet service organization. Get involved. It will make you feel better.
0: A hundred percent. So. Uh, again, brother, it's it's great to hear your story. I can't wait to share it with everybody. And certainly thank you for your time and Dyer DiPatista. Thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: It's been a, it's been an honor, Mark. Thank you, brother.
0: You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.